Morning, church. Morning. It is good to be with you guys. Uh, I'm a little bothered that Terry got a big hand and... Uh, a little uncomfortable for me, i got to be honest with you, but there you go. Um, hey, uh, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about my week. So uh, this past week, I took my wife to the movies because I'm that kind of romantic guy, right? <laughs> and uh, because I'm a romantic guy, I said we should probably see an action flick. <laughs> and so we saw... F9, the ninth installment in the Fast and Furious series, um, which is, you know, a romantic comedy if ever there was one. And I'm telling you, that right there is some outstanding filmmaking. I mean, Oscars, get ready. F9 is coming for you this year. Amazing dialogue in this movie. Like the part where she says, oh no, and he goes, what? Like, it's just powerful, you know? <laughs> you tear up, such well-developed characters, and the unparalleled acting of the great Vin Diesel, <laughs> one of the great actors of our day, and, and such a believable storyline. Now, I, I don't want to be a spoiler if you haven't seen it, but, but there's a scene where a Pontiac Fiero with a rocket strapped to it goes to outer space and meets up with an international space station. It's the most believable film I've seen in a very, very long time. Um, <laughs> and this is the ninth in the installment of this series. They just keep making these movies and they just keep making them crazier and crazier with bigger crashes and more action and more fights and bigger guys with more muscles and all of that kind of stuff. It is crazy, and yet, we've seen all of them. <laughs> all nine of these movies, we have seen them, because once they get you in a series, they got you hooked, right? And they just keep making more and more. There's been a lot of these series, as you know, Star Wars, right? Um, you know, I thought, well, they made three movies, that was amazing, but then they made three more movies, and the three that they made second actually come first, and you have to flop them around like that in order to understand what's going on, and then they came out with TV shows for Star Wars and all that, and it is never ending. And we have Raiders of the Lost Ark, great series, right? We have Harrison Ford and the new one that's about to come out. It's Harrison Ford looking for his medicine at the nursing home. It's very exciting. It's an amazing thing. We have a new Rocky movie coming out where Rocky fights the nurse because she wants to give him his vegetables and that doesn't go well. All of these movies, they just keep going and going. And it's not just movies, there are book series also, the Chronicles of Narnia, the uh, Lord of the Rings series, the Harry Potter series, the Hunger Games, it goes on and on. I know you're going, those are movies, those are movies. No, those were books first. There's, because back in the olden days, people used to read books. It's true, if you're under 25, ask your grandparents, they'll explain it to you. But these, they just keep making these series and 
um, we are in the middle of one of these book series because you didn't come to the theater today. You came to the body of Christ. You didn't come to watch a movie. You came to worship God. You didn't come to hear a soundtrack. You came to hear from the word of God. And so I want to tell you that we have a great series of books. There's actually 66 of them. And they're contained in one leather-bound or uh, electronic kind of a thing. And it's a 66-book series that, when you put it all together, is known as the Bible. And even the Bible is made up of several book series. Um, For example, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That, I don't know if you realize this, that is one series of books written by Moses, all as one great work to help us to understand how everything started and get us um, uh, grounded in the foundation of God's word. And then as you go through the Old Testament, you got First and Second Samuel as a series. You get First and Second Kings as a series. You get First and Second Chronicles as a series. You move ahead to the New Testament, you get First and Second Corinthians. You get First and Second Thessalonians. You get First and Second Timothy. You get First and Second Peter. And just for good measure, you get First, Second, and Third John. So a lot of what we see in the scripture is actually um, these series of books that are written so that we get a full understanding of what God has to say to us. And then there is the subject of our current study, which is the book of Acts. And I'm not sure if you know this, but the book of Acts is also one of two in a series. This, This series of two books is written by our old friend, Dr. Luke. And he writes the book of Luke. And then as the sequel to the book of Luke, he writes the Acts of the Apostles, or what we call the book of Acts. So as we're in our Acts study, I want to begin by turning to the book of Luke. Go to the end of the book of Luke. So go to your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of the New Testament, and go to the end, chapter 24. And we're just gonna pick this up and look together in the last few verses here of the book of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. This is Jesus at the very end before his ascension. Here's what he says. Verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then... He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you're to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's how Luke ends his first book. Now go over to Acts chapter one, and let's see how Luke begins the sequel. Acts chapter one, beginning in verse one. 
The first account I composed, that's the book of Luke, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Isn't that interesting? We think of Jesus as coming to earth, living his life, beginning to end, and the end of chapter 24 of Luke is the end of the Jesus story, but Luke says it's just the beginning of what Jesus did. It's just the beginning of what he was teaching. All that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After he had, by the Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. That's what we just read but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, if you've been uh, listening in on this series for any length of time, you have now read that verse with me numerous times. It lays the foundation for the book of Acts, gives us a sense of where God is trying to take us and what this book is really all about. I find it interesting when you look at verse seven, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Why does he say that? Because they keep asking him the wrong questions. We have a tendency, do we not, to want to know all kinds of stuff that we don't really need to know. And God has a way of saying, listen, I know that's what you're interested in, but let me redirect you and let me tell you what you really need to know. And that's what he begins to do in verse eight. He redirects them to what they really need to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. It's important that Jesus begins this discussion by telling them that they will receive what? Power. Power. He says, you're gonna receive power. And that's exactly the same thing that he said in Luke 24. So you can see that this is a sequel to that book. He's just picking up right where he left off in Acts chapter one. And he says, you're going to receive power. Now that should get their attention. That should get our attention because everybody wants to receive power, right? We all want more power. If we just had more power, we could do all the things that we want to do. We just need more power. We love power. We can't get enough power. I always shake my head when I watch the news and I see you know, all the stuff that the president goes through and I don't care which president you're talking about. I, I just remember that when President Clinton took office, he was young and good looking. When he came out of office, he looked like he'd been run over by a train. And that has happened to 
president after president, right? It is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job where all that you do is intensely important and, and life and death decisions are being made in your office and stuff is coming across your desk that you're not qualified to handle. I don't care how good of a president you are. And these guys sign up for this. They spend millions of dollars running for this office. Why do people want this job? Power. We love power. We, why do people buy and stockpile weapons? Power. Why do people try to accumulate financial fortunes? Power. Why do people lie and cheat and manipulate other people? Power. People love power. We love power. We like to use power tools. <laughs> some of you do. I'm not allowed. But some of you <laughs> love to use power tools. We take power walks. We, we wear power ties and we take power naps. Now that I do. <laughs> We're obsessed with power, you guys. And that's one of the things that people love about the book of Acts is you get this amazing display of power. It seems like page after page it's happening, right? The sick are getting healed and demons are getting cast out of people. Even the dead are being raised in the book of Acts and it seems like there are miracles happening every day as we read about this first century church and it's fascinating to us because of all of this power and we're told over and over again in the book of Acts that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe as signs and wonders were taking place at the hands of the apostles. So God has empowered these apostles with the ability to perform signs and wonders, and there are miracles taking place in the church, just like there were miracles taking place when Jesus was walking on the earth. And he said that would happen because he said, I am going to give you power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So they had to wait for the Spirit to come so that they would have that kind of power. And we watch this in the book of Acts and people ask the reasonable question, where is that power in the church today? There's all kinds of answers. It really depends who you ask. Um, of course, there are some who are, who are you know, trying to duplicate the signs and wonders that we see in Acts. It seems like we're always hearing about some charlatan who is fooling people at a healing service or trying to convince people that he or she has some special anointing from God and that if you just contribute to their ministry, you can participate in that anointing. And, and the church gets a black eye every time one of these people is exposed um, as being a phony or some kind of a thief or a heretic. But even though there are excesses, even though there are unscrupulous people trying to take advantage in God's name, that doesn't mean that the power of God is lacking in the church today. So we need to be careful that we don't swing the pendulum so far in the one direction that we go, hey, everything is about an exhibition of God's miraculous power and if you come to church on a Sunday and nothing miraculous happens and nobody gets healed and nobody falls down and starts shaking on the ground and nobody has a prophetic word and nobody does any of that, if you come to church and that doesn't happen, well, the Holy Spirit didn't show up that day, 
That on the one extreme, and on the other extreme, we need to not go over to the side that says, listen, you know, the power of God was in the church in the first century, but it's not in the church today. Our job's to read about that and look forward to going to heaven where we're gonna see the power of God. Because the power of God is every bit as prevalent in the people of God today as it was in the first century. Now, it's a different time. God was establishing the church at that time and so the role of signs and wonders was powerful and important and significant in the, uh, in the first century church in a different way than it is today. But don't forget this, Jesus promised, he promised that we, his church, would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. That when we had the Holy Spirit, we will receive power. And so with all the confusion around the power of God in the church, what should we be looking for? What kind of power should we expect if we're really followers of Christ? Um, what is this power of God for in the church? That's kind of what we're going to be digging into these next few weeks as we look at the book of Acts. How are we supposed to get this power? How are we expected to use this power? What part of this power involves us and what part of this power involves God? Well, we're gonna just sort of introduce this concept today and we're gonna dig into it in the next couple of weeks, but for now, let's take a closer look at what Jesus says about the purpose of this power in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that verse that we've all memorized by now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even in the remotest parts of the earth. He told them not to even begin their ministry. Don't even go about preaching. Don't even go around looking to heal people. Don't be going around trying to get the church established. He said, just go and wait. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will know that he has come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, that is when you will be empowered. What's he saying? He's saying that apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what he had been saying all along. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's nothing of power, nothing of significance that can happen through the life of a Christian apart from God. And so it comes with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now again, it's a different time. The book of Acts is a transitional time. We need to be very careful not to assume that everything that happens in the book of Acts is happening the same way in every era of the church. But the, the presence of the Spirit is universal across every age of the church. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so... This power that he talks about, whatever else is true of it, the power is directly related to the presence and the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's begin there. This power that God says is supposed to infuse the life of the church is not our power. It's not about your talent, it's not about your wisdom, it's not about your strength, it's not about your ability, it is about the Holy Spirit himself. It's his power. It's not power that is given to me, that I would somehow use it for whatever purposes I think seem reasonable. 
the power that he's speaking of actually belongs to the Holy Spirit. And it is not the power that is given to followers of Christ. It is the Spirit of God that is given to followers of Christ. And when you have the Spirit of God, he has the power. Does that make sense? So let's not get confused and think, well, if I could take a class, if I could read a a manual, if I could take a lesson, maybe I could learn to live in this kind of power. It's not your power. It's not manipulated by you. It's not controlled by you. It is a matter of the presence of the Spirit in your life. The power belongs to the Spirit, and the Spirit is given to us. When you come to know Jesus, what is given to you is not simply power. It's way better than that. What's given to you when you enter into a saving relationship with Christ is a relationship with God marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life who does not leave you and does not forsake you. And he, the Holy Spirit, is free to exercise his power however he decides, whenever he decides, wherever he decides, through whomever he decides. That's how he works. And it is not for my purposes that I get to interact with this power. And it is certainly not for my glory that I get to interact with this power. It is for his purpose and his glory. Look at verse 8 again. Look at the second half. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. He says, the power's coming. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will bring with him his power. He will empower you because he will indwell you. He will fill you. And when the Holy Spirit fills you, you will be empowered. Empowered to do what? To be his witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth, we are empowered for the mission of God. Now, I don't know how much time and energy and thought you've given to the question of what your mission in life is. Some of us have personal mission statements that we've written and memorized, and some of us have personal mission statements that we've written and put in a file somewhere and have no idea what they say. Um, but, But I don't know whether you've even given any thought to what your mission is, but let me just tell you something. This power is not about your mission. It's about his mission. It's about his purpose. It's about his glory. The power is given in the person of the Holy Spirit for God's purposes on the earth. He empowers us to be his witnesses, to go and make disciples of all nations, to love God and to love people and change the world. So here's a good way to remember it. It's not about us. It's all about him. The power of the Holy Spirit is not about us, it's all about him. And it's not about my plans. And it's not about my preferences. And it's not about my enjoyment. And it's not about all the things that I hope for and want. The Spirit is given for God's purpose. And Luke's gospel gives us even more insight to this. So keep a finger in Acts chapter one, flip back over to Luke 24. These are our only two passages today as we introduce this topic of power in the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 24 again. Let's look at verses 46 through 49 a little more closely. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You 
are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There it is again. Power for the mission. That the gospel is going to be proclaimed. That people are going to see and hear and experience the power of God. The message of Jesus Christ. The saving knowledge of truth that comes only through the gospel. And how does the gospel come? As Paul explains, it comes because he sends a preacher. Now when you hear the word preacher in that passage, don't think that it means a professional clergyman. It means someone who proclaims the message. And guys, there's a lot of ways to proclaim the message and most of it is not done in front of a crowd with a microphone. Most of it is done one-on-one. A lot of it is done by the way you live as people are watching you. And a lot of it is done by the way that you care for people and the way that you speak to people and the things that you share with people. All of that empowered by God himself. There it is that the Spirit is given to empower us for his mission. And guys, I don't know how you think about this, but this is great news. It's great news because among other things, it means this. God is not depending on your power to get the ministry done. That is good news, right? God's not looking at you, and I don't know how excited you are, how full of yourself you are, but uh, God didn't pick you because you had so much to offer him. Can Amen? Anybody? I mean, if you can't say it about yourself, say it about the person next to you at least, right? God didn't choose you because you were so impressive to him. God didn't choose you to be his follower because he looked and said, man, I'm never going to be able to spread the kingdom without her. Boy, I'm never, ever going to be able to reach the lost without him. That's not what he does. What God does is he takes broken down, messed up, you and me, fills us with his spirit, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he does his work. It's not about our ability to do his work. God alone has that power, and it's in the person of the Holy Spirit. So he gives us his spirit, And that's how his mission is carried out. That's how people's eyes are open to the truth, by the power of his spirit. It's by his power that people are loved into the kingdom. And all all we're asked to do is be his witnesses. He provides the power for the mission. We just cooperate. And if you're a follower of Christ, you already have the Holy Spirit. It's, it's different than it was when Jesus is speaking to them because, because Jesus said, I cannot send the Spirit until I go back to my Father. And after I've gone back to my Father, I will send the Spirit. And then everyone who is in a saving relationship with Jesus will be indwelt with that Spirit. They had to wait for the Spirit to come. You don't have to wait for some special anointing, some special moment where the Holy Spirit does some special thing in you. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes comes into your life. The scripture says we are sealed by his spirit. Our very salvation is connected to the presence of his spirit in our lives. So we don't have to hope, well, maybe one day I'll get the spirit and then I'll have all of this power. Let me figure out how to get the spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've already submitted your life to Jesus as Lord, if you've, if you've said yes to his invitation of grace, you have this same spirit 
The same power, the same presence of God in your life. And it's by that spirit that God does amazing things. So what does that mean? It means that God is less interested in your ability than he is in your availability. It's not about what you are able to do. It's about what he is able to do when you make yourself available to him. All you have to do is be available. He already has the ability. And I'm afraid that to a great degree, the modern American church has really gotten off track when it comes to this. And I, and I, wanna, I wanna be thoughtful and careful about what I'm about to say about this because um, I, th- I think it's too much to just be critical of all that is going on in the church today. God is still doing amazing things. The people of God are still filled with the Spirit and God is doing amazing things. But I think if we can't honestly, as the church, look in the mirror and go, hey, where have we gotten off track? Then we're never gonna get back on track, right? So, so let me just say this. Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But I think it's all too common that we are trying to build the church. And, and instead of relying on God's power through the Holy Spirit flowing through us, we're relying on all kinds of human power and we're watching the, the organization called the church in many cases either flourish or die based on the human power that is brought to bear in that church. Let me tell you what I mean. When we try to build the church, we rely on the power of personality. And you show me almost any like big, growing, moving, um, active church in any community in this country, and I will show you at least one, and oftentimes far more than one, powerful personalities, incredibly charismatic people who are at the forefront in the face of that church. And, and a lot of times, you can go uh, to a worship service and you can experience the music and the preaching and all the programs and all the stuff that happens and you can be wowed and impressed and blown away by the power of the personalities that you're dealing with and never even really need to be impacted by the Holy Spirit because after all, the show is so impressive. The people are so impressive. So we try to use the power of personality. Man, if you could just get the right senior pastor. Boy, if we could just get the right youth pastor, a guy with incredible personality, a guy with charisma that the kids love and he's gotta have all the right tattoos and all the right cool clothes and all the right vernacular and all that kind of stuff. And if we get that, then we're gonna have a great movement of teenagers in our community. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. It does happen. And youth groups explode and amazing things happen. And oftentimes there's no lasting fruit because it's all built around a person and that person stumbles and the whole thing crumbles. That person leaves and the whole thing crumbles. I don't know why I'm going here, but um, you know, the, the average tenure of a senior pastor in the American Protestant church is less than three years. 
So, so there's this movement, 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 movement. Oftentimes, it's because God is working and he's moving that guy or, or lady, right? Oftentimes, though, it's because the congregation has had enough and the powerful people in the congregation say, we want this person out of here. Oftentimes, it's because the pastor himself has had enough and he's saying, and this isn't working. I don't like it here. It's not going great. I've preached my three years worth of sermons. I gotta go somewhere else and reuse these sermons, whatever the case is. So if we're gonna build this on personality, you know how few healthy churches there's gonna be in America? The average tenure of a youth pastor, a professional full-time staff member youth pastor is less than 18 months. So we say to this incoming eighth grader, we say, hey, welcome to our youth group. We're gonna get to know you, we're gonna love you, and we're, you're gonna trust me, and we're gonna build into you, and then uh, in a year, I'm gone, and we bring in the next guy for his freshman year, and in his freshman year, the next guy says, Does, trust me, we're gonna be friends, we're gonna do this, you're gonna, I'm gonna disciple you, and I'm gonna mentor you, and then after 10 months, he's gone, and then the next guy comes for his sophomore year, and after a while, you know what kids do? They put up a wall, and they go, I'm not, I'm not open opening up to these people. Again, I'm not criticizing those whom God takes and moves around. God sometimes does that. I am saying this. If we build it on the personality of people, there's two problems. One is we built it. And what we build will fall. And the second is it's built on the wrong foundation. It needs to be built on the foundation of Christ instead of the personality of a person. So we use the power of personality. We use the power of money. You know, this is why churches often do so much focus on fundraising. You know, th- listen, I'm, I'm, I'm in a tough spot here. I don't want to give you the idea that every time a pastor asks for money, he's sinning because we need money. On the other hand, if you think that if you just build the budget, you'll build the kingdom... You've completely misunderstood the whole idea. Bigger buildings, fancier stuff, more staff, all of the stuff that we do in churches in order to think that this is gonna turn the corner. Man, if we could only get a better budget, if we could only do a fundraising effort, if we could only get some donor to leave us something in their will, then it would all be okay. That's not how the church is built. Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We use the power of technology today. I mean, you show me a church that doesn't embrace technology and I will show you a church where there ain't nobody there. Because there's gotta be good lighting and there's gotta be good sound and there's gotta be good video and there's gotta be good music and there's gotta be good internet presence. And listen, I'm not saying those are bad things. We're trying to do all of those well. And we're trying to do all those things well because we're trying to remove any stumbling blocks from people connecting with God. But isn't it easy for the church's impressive program to become the point? And then, and then we wonder why people tend to have such a um, consumeristic mentality when it comes to the church. You can't build the church with technology and music and leadership techniques. It's not our church to build. Our human power and resources are not enough to change anyone's heart. So there are two common mistakes that I wanna mention today that we tend to make when it comes to this issue of power in the church. One is that we try to do supernatural work with natural power. 
You can't do supernatural work with natural power. Too many times, those who lead the church are trying to do it from our own strength rather than from the strength of God. And, and, and listen, I've been guilty of this. Every pastor I know has been guilty of this. Every Sunday school teacher I know has probably been guilty of this. Every youth leader, every women's ministry director, everybody that is trying to do ministry, man, there are days when you are far from God. There are days when you are not dealing with the sin in your own life. There are days when you just go, you know what? I'm a really good public speaker. I could pull this off. And you can wow them and you can fool them. If you're talented, if you have natural gifting, you can do this. But not for long and not in a way that lasts and certainly not in a way that changes anybody's hearts. If you're a great preacher or a great musician or, or a great um, natural leader, you can wow an audience with your own wisdom and wit and talent and all that kind of stuff, but you're never gonna see lives change that way. True transformation only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit as it's unleashed through us. So let me ask you this, and this should go for all of us. Uh, if you're a ministry volunteer, if you're a, a, a teacher, a school teacher, if, if you're a parent, if you're a worship leader, if you're a preacher, if you're, if you're somebody who serves coffee at the coffee bar on Sunday mornings, if you're a person who's just trying to minister to your own family and your own neighbors, let me just ask you this. Are you truly drawing near to God? Or are you just doing what you're calling God's work in your own power? Are you relying on your own natural ability, your own efforts, to touch lives? Are you walking intimately with the Spirit of God? Or are you reserving the right to be the Lord of your own life and then going through the motions of trying to raise your kids, going through the motions of trying to love your spouse, going through the motions of trying to lead a ministry, going through the motions of trying to share Christ with people? It may be that just today, God is calling you to a deeper walk, a new level of surrender to the Spirit of God so that He is free to do something through you that you cannot do on your own. So that's the one big mistake. Your power, apart from God, is not enough. The other mistake is that we can easily decide to seek His hand more than His face. You know what I mean about that? that? That oftentimes when we think of the power of God, we're thinking of God doing something for me. God healing, God fixing, God restoring, God touching, God giving, God providing, God supplying, all of those things that God does for us and we see all the amazing things that God does for us and we seek the outcome rather than seeking God himself. It's easy to do. And sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. We want to see the miracles. We want to experience the power. We want to know the recipe for success in life and ministry so we can just do it. But too often, we don't want to draw near to him. We don't want to give him real access to our lives. We long for the manifestation for the power of God, 
but we don't long for God. Imagine, um, you know, a, a husband and wife being interviewed, and the interviewer says to the husband, what do you love about your wife? And you just see the, the wife turn to the husband, and she can't wait to hear what he has to say. And he says, man, she always gets the laundry done. And she's such a good cook. And man, she keeps the house so clean. And she's so good with the kids. Wives, is that what you want to hear? That, that your husband likes what you bring to the table? Or do you want to know that your husband loves you? That he longs for you? That it's the relationship with you that matters? It's about the relationship. It is not about the outcome of the relationship. And it's so easy. By the way, if, this, if you need to be slapped in the head in your marriage, take that. <laughs> but even if you don't need to be slapped in the head in your marriage, you may need to be slapped in the head in your relationship with God because it is a relationship of love. And if you've made it about seeking his hand and not his face, you've missed something. Because when we walk with him, we walk in supernatural power. He is the power to walk by faith. He is the power to be bold in times of danger. He is the power to overcome temptation. He is the power to share the gospel in a coherent and meaningful way. He is the power to carry out the great commission and the great commandment. Over the next couple weeks, what we're gonna do is talk about how do we walk with him in such a way that that power is manifested through us. The Spirit empowers us to live on this mission with God. What does that look like? But for today, let me remind you. Number one, it's all about him and not about you. The power of abundant living comes in him and it flows from him and it flows through us to others. So don't try to do it on your own. And second, seek his face more than you seek his hand. When you walk closely with him, he will do amazing things in you And when he does amazing things in you, he will do amazing things through you. God wants to transform your life. And through you, he will transform the lives of other people, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Isn't it about time to cease striving and let the spirit of God do his thing in your life? It's not about you. It's all about him. Let's pray. Father, as, as your people, we can only come before you now and say thank you for your graciousness, your patience, the way that you um, put up with us, the way that, that you choose to extend grace in our lives. For Father, too often, um, we think it's about us. Too often we think it's about our purposes, our ideals, our, our plans, and even our power. And so we pray today that as your church, we would be so submitted to you, so surrendered to you, that people would see your power flowing into our lives and your power flowing through us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.